And welcome to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me today is Bill Beverly, who's written the cover article for the uh, May 2011 issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine. Uh, this podcast sponsored by AccuLights Incorporated. I want you to go check out their website, www.acculites.com. That's www.acculites.com. Uh, they are your DCC center. Clubs, call them for special pricing on converting to Digitrax DCC. Well, Bill, want to welcome you to the show today. Look forward to uh, having a good conversation. Well, good morning. How are we doing? We are doing good. Bill is out in uh, California. He's out in a little town just outside of Pasadena called Sierra Madre. And uh, if you're an old guy, you remember Sierra Madre from Humphrey Bogart's 1948 movie called The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Is it anything like that still? Well, um, you know, in, in the mid-1950s, uh, they used to uh, shoot a lot of um, horror movies in, in the town because we have <laughs> a, lot of old, um, a lot of old houses around here that were built in the 1920s and 30s, a lot of the old craftsmen. Um, our claim to fame is um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Get out of town. Uh, that that that's the town that uh, a little town square where you see the the pods being uh, brought in and and the people you know being reproduced. So um, that's a little scenario of our little town. We are nestled between Pasadena and the mountains. It's uh, right behind us, so we're we're a little tiny town about um, I guess about one mile square, two miles square, or something like that. But it, um, but we have a lot of um, a lot of modeling in the area. Um, we have uh, a little club here called the Slim Gauge Guild, which is a narrow gauge model railroad club. Uh, we model in both um, SM3 and HON3, which um, I see has been gaining a lot of popularity with the uh, introduction of the uh, Blackstone. Um, Engines that's uh, made uh, made a big difference on that scale. Uh, explain that. I'm unfamiliar with that. Um, with, with Blackstone? Yes. Yeah, Blackstone is um, a a company out of um, Durango, Colorado. They uh, manufacture um, basically hybrid type um, HON3 engines. Um, it's a company. Uh, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with with Soundtracks. Yes. Well, well Sound uh, uh, Blackstone is, I guess, a subsidiary of of, of Soundtracks, and uh, they are manufacturing um, HON3 engines and ready to run rolling stock. So um, it's uh, it's really uh, added a lot of um, a lot of interest to that scale. I'm uh, an HO guy, so I've been spoiled all these years with ready to run, and now some, you know, even very detailed, uh, uh, unique ready to run. I guess what in the past, uh, S 
was probably a lot of kit bashed and uh, yeah, SN3 and HN3 over the years, and I was in I started in HON3 about 30 years ago, and um, I guess I'm just a, a scratch builder by heart, and uh, so I guess that's what um, attracted me to it. Uh, but a lot of the engines were mostly uh, brass imports, and uh, the running characteristics were kind of kind of iffy. You basically had to uh, toy with them quite a bit to to get them to run correctly. And um, so when I I joined the Slim Gauge Guild, uh, I guess about ten ten fifteen years ago, um, the guys were also um, working with SM3. Um, I, and I guess a lot of people don't really understand what SM3 is. Um, it's basically um, S-scale, but um, it's, the rails are gauged to three foot rather than the four feet, eight and, eight and a half inches or whatever it is. And um, so it, it's kind of like a really niche type of, uh, of a modeling scale. Okay. And but it allows for a lot of scratch building, which is something that I enjoy. Now, what is the uh the scale relationship in uh for S scale? S scale is well, HO is 187. Yes. And um so S would have been uh 164th. Okay. So it uh. is larger than than HO scale. Um, but it's kind of like it between, uh, if you remember the old um, American Flyer trains. Absolutely. So the so the size of SN3 engines are about halfway between HO and the American Flyer. So just to give you a little, you know, visual type uh, type idea on on how that that it works. Okay. And track, now, it, and the go track ahead. is actually SN3. People think that it will run on HO scale track, but it will not. We um, Same thing with, with HON3. People think it runs on N-scale track, but it does not. It, okay. it actually has our own scaled track. Now, does that, uh, and boy, this is probably going to be a really silly observation, but does that, if you're doing the uh, narrow gauge, mm -hmm. does that really drive you towards like Durango and Silverton, that type of uh, sure. line? Sure, and, and, and I think some of the uh, people who originally get into it are because, you know, as kids you you ride the Durango and Silverton, or um, my favorite is um, going at the Cumberson Toltec, which goes out of Chama, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that goes all, all the way up to um, Antonito. So, um, so those are the engines that uh, are most popular to uh, model in that scale. Okay, and that uh, a couple years ago for my birthday, my wife uh, gave me a trip up to La Vida Pass, which was standard oh, sure. gauge. Sure. But on the drive up, because I took back roads, went up through the uh, Navajo Reservation across right. uh, Monument Valley, right? Four corners, and once I got into that northwestern part of, uh, or actually southwestern part of. Colorado. I was just, you know, made a mental note. I need to come back and do Cumbres and then Durango and just add that, you know, check that off my bucket list. Right. I mean, because just so incredible the scenery up there. 
Yeah, and you realize why they had to use narrow gauge engines up there is because um, some of these uh, areas that they were going into, you would never be able to get you know a full size standard gauge engine through there. Mm-hmm. So um, going up and servicing the mines and um, you know and in, in, in the ranches up in that area, uh, you, you really needed you know smaller engines and. Um, and narrower track to get through all those passages. Now, some of the photos, especially of the uh, Durango, I believe it is, it looks like, you know, once you climb for a while, you're on real high, I'll, I'll say high Sierras. It uh, reminds me of that somewhat flatter area around Alamosa and and so right. forth. It's not all steep, craggy canyons like going up you know, through uh, Colorado and Utah. Right, yeah, there are some areas around Durango and Antonito, and uh, those were normally, uh, if you have, uh, I guess you could call it flat areas, relatively speaking, to the surrounding area. And that's where they would have the, um, you know, the roundhouses and and all the um, maintenance away type areas for for all the engines. And... um, one of the favorite lines that I like to model is the Rio Grande Southern that ran from um, from the lower end was down in Durango, and then it worked its way up all the way up to uh, Ridgeway, uh, Colorado. And um, if you know some of that area, that's a uh, gorgeous country, but also really hard and, and to uh, to get a locomotive up through some of those areas. They basically followed the streams. Yes. Now, what kind of, because uh, I don't know, I've never studied the uh, the narrow gauges and stuff out there. What kind of grades were they dealing with? Pretty steep. Um, I don't know the numbers exactly, but uh, you're talking probably 3 and 4% um, grades on some of these. Um, a lot of the techniques that they had to use is actually breaking the train where they would... Um, get to an area where they would actually have to separate the train and leave half of it behind, run all the way up with the first half, and then come back down for the second half. And, okay. And, and uh, that was uh, a pretty pro- um, common practice around there. Um, also, the, um, the, the, the trains that they ran were not very long. Um, you know, when you look, go out into the desert and you start seeing, you know, these, these locomotives running through the desert with, you know, it looks like a two or three mile train. Whereas the narrow gauge, you normally had, you know, between eight to maybe 16 cars. Um, they were not really servicing uh, a huge, huge population in the area at that time. So uh, it gives a lot more uh, opportunity to really detail your um, your stock cars and your and your box cars um, to to make more of a um, a very unique train rather than having something that's you know a mile long or something like that. Okay, and how long were those cars? I mean, they they look like they may have been like they even get as big as forty footers. I I think so. Um, I'm not really sure of the numbers. I don't have them right in front of me, but okay. uh, I normally tell people when they're trying to compare them. I'd say they're about two-thirds the size of a standard boxcar. Oh, okay. So um, they held less, and um, 
but you have to understand about you know the um, the working environment that they had to go through. Um, a lot of these boxcars were uh, servicing small towns, so the the volume that they had to carry was not really all that critical. A lot of them were servicing mines, so they were uh, you know carrying um, you know ore. Um, you know, during the the stock runs, you know, in the winter, mm-hmm. when they would bring the, uh, the uh, sheep down from the high country, um, you would see a lot of stock car runs uh, with mostly sheep and, and cattle. And then in in the springtime, they would bring them back up. So uh, you'd see a lot of uh, stock car trains. Okay, and then as far as passengers taking them up, they were probably just. Mixed trains at a there were at a coach mixed trains. or something. They they had um, the the trains were actually not very long. They were uh, working with uh, a, you know just maybe uh, two or three passenger cars, and um, and and probably a, one or two cars up front for either mail or or baggage. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about the Galloping Goose. Yes. But that was ran on the Rio Grande Southern. And it took a um, the the passenger uh, traffic was very light, so they basically took um, old limousines and outfitted them to run on the rails. And um, they also had a um, a box car in the rear section of of the goose that allowed them to carry baggage or or mail. And they had the mail contract back then. And they had seating for you know six or eight passengers, so the uh, passenger traffic there was you know very light, especially before the 1940s, um, when you had a, a very relatively small population in the mountains. Okay, then yeah, probably the terrain and just the weather and everything else probably limited that. You were either associated with the mining operations or you weren't there. Right, you know, the wives going into town to, to uh, gather supplies and bring them back home. Oh, okay, all right. Well, let's uh, segue here. I was just fascinated when I read the the title to the article and then read through it and watched the video. I encourage you, uh, listeners, go also watch the uh, the video that's associated with the uh, the article. I've got to ask, how in the world did you stumble on using water-soluble pencils? Um, Well, to to back up just a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, when when I was in, uh, I think I I wrote part of in the article about when I was in Chama, New Mexico, um, Chama has just a a large freight yard just full of these antique boxcars and stock cars and and um, it's, it's kind of like a living museum down there. Mm-hmm. And as I was walking through them, I started to notice how um, wooden box cars are weathered. Um, it, it, a little bit different than, you know, uh, modeling in HO where you normally have, you know, steel box cars. Uh, so you have, have a different weathering pattern. You, uh, steel box cars normally have a lot of rust and it's, Associated with certain seams in the in, in the box car, whereas these wooden box cars weather quite a bit differently. Uh, the wooden box cars are made up of individual boards, 
And uh, as I was kind of like examining these boards and taking photographs of them, I noticed how they weathered differently and how the different uh, boards, the texture of the board would hold paint differently than the board right next to it. So as uh, I was trying to figure out how to reproduce this weathering on my boxcars, now how do I individually weather a board? And I originally started out with trying to use the uh, the powdered chalks, uh-huh. but that I, it really did not give me the control that I wanted. I, I wanted basically a pencil point, and that led me to trying starting to experiment with the um, the artist pencils and trying to get to a very fine line so I could individually weather individual boards. And so we started experimenting with a couple of different brands of pencils. Um, I originally started out with the Prismacolor, which is an artist type of pencil. Okay. But I think it, uh, I, I don't know the composition of these pencils, but I think that one has just too much clay in it. I'm not sure how they are, but it really would not give me the texture that I was after. And then I was on the Yahoo chat groups, and uh, people are always, you know, passing ideas back and forth. And, and I was on the SM3 uh, chat group, and um, someone mentioned the Derwent watercolor pencils, and he was working in that. And that's where I started to experiment with the Derwent. And then from then on, I had to start experimenting with what type of solution that would properly soften the pencil. Um, oh, okay. Water worked okay, but as we started, and I think someone mentioned vinegar, and vinegar works pretty well, but I just really did not like, you know, the odor sitting there at my workbench with, you know, <laughs> a, a, you know a glass full of vinegar. Right. And then I started to experiment with other things. I actually experimented with uh, windshield washer fluid. Someone mentioned windshield washer fluid, but I sure. really, um, that works good. Um, but then someone else said, well, yeah, we really think it's the ammonia that is, is doing it that really softens this pencil to the point that it will allow you to... Um, almost like a, a watercolor paintbrush. So that's when I started experimenting with the, um, with the uh, like 409 or, or Windex that um, really allows this pencil to be softened but gives it more of a control. So that's kind of like the steps I had to go through to, uh, to, to figure out how to, how to get these pencils to soften correctly. Amazing. Now, and this goes back to a previous question and one or two of your comments. Are most of the kits you're building then wood? They are actually styrene. Okay. Um, to simulate wood. Um, uh, I think I mentioned in, in, the, um, in, in the article that uh, the primary uh, supplier is PBL. Um, uh, they're in Ukiah, California. I don't know if I can give them a plug, but they're sure. www.p-b-l.com. Okay. And uh, they're a small mom-and-pop shop. 
Um, they've been at it, uh, for, I guess, for about 35 years now, uh, manufacturing um, you know, what we used to call shaker box kits. You know, you just get a box of loose parts that, you know, you shake and, and uh, you know, three hours later, after quite a bit of work, you you have them put together. Okay. Um, but they're very highly detailed kits. Um, you basically have to build one or two uh, throwaway kits, you know, to uh, to get the third one that actually comes out correctly. Okay. If you ever worked with some of these uh, kits. And um, so they go together fairly well. But then after they go together, then comes the um, other half of them is actually getting to then to paint correctly. And then then from then on, you start your weathering process. And um, I actually go through three phases of the weathering process. And um, the first phase is airbrushing. I, uh, I basically do a lot of airbrushing to mm-hmm. uh, to, to do the, you know the primary weathering and, and dull down the uh, the uh, the sheen from you know the the decaling and all that sort of stuff, and then I do some of the um, weathering with chalks. I, I still use chalks, and then I allow everything to dry for a week or two, and that's when I start working on them with the uh, weathering with the uh, watercolor pencils all right so the kits are uh, just uh, injection molded uh, right. sides roofs and stuff out of yeah you get four four sides of roof okay. and a bottom and and then all the details that have to go on them after that okay because I remember in the article you mentioned the company but it didn't ring a bell with me so I thought must be wood, and then I'm thinking, golly, tell me he is not putting all these individual boards in there, you know, out of uh, you know. I've actually seen that. A friend of mine actually, um, he likes to uh, assemble them board by board construction, but um, I'd I'd go crazy doing that. Oh, oh, you and me both. That would be. Oh, I can't imagine the challenge that would be. <laughs> okay, so you've got chalk. Uh, the first medium I ever used back in '73, I think it was a uh, one of the model magazines talked about using, you know, pastels and right. And as it's you mentioned, with a razor blade and you get yes. a little pile, and that seems to go all over the place. Yeah, and then it disappears on you when you hit it with the dull coat. And that's one of the reasons why I started going to these pencils because they hold up better mm-hmm. once you dull coat them. They don't disappear like the uh, the chalks will. Well, and that's what why I did the segue over to pigment. Uh, when I was living in Cleveland before we moved to Arizona, the guy goes, "Well, here, try pigment." He said, "It's it's more intense." He said, mm-hmm. "It'll still fade, but right. not quite as much." Right, right. So, and then as you indicate in the article about putting down a, a base coat to give the uh, the substrate tooth to capture the uh, the weathering medium. Right. I've done that too, but the caution there is, boy, you've got to be careful because sometimes it can have so much bite mm-hmm. that if you put too much in or in the wrong place, you're going to work long and hard to get that get that uh, to the 
level you want. So that can be a two-edged sword. Yep. Uh, that or you just have to have a lot more skill than I do. Uh, so you've got your pencil on, then you're augmenting with with chalk. Do you ever use any washes or anything on top of it, like either artist oils diluted down or anything like that? You know, I, I really haven't. Um, uh, I was watching some other articles actually on um, on the web where you can, you know, uh, there's quite a bit of stuff out there now on, on how to do weathering and how people take uh, oils and uh, then they use, um, hmm? um, you know, a thinner to to wash it down. Um, I, I seem to be fairly sensitive to to a lot of those chemicals, so. Um, I like to do weathering with water-soluble type okay. uh, um, stuff. So I've been trying to stay away from the turpentines and all that sort of stuff that some people are using to uh, to do weathering. And that's one of the reasons why I really like these uh, these pencils because I mean, you know, the the most toxic thing you're working with is you know window cleaner. <laughs> so um, that seems to uh, um, plus it's not messy. I mean, you can sit in front of the television, you know, on a dining room table and, and mm-hmm. work with these things. You know, you don't need you don't need an airbrush, you know, after all that stuff is done. I, I normally will, uh, you know, set up my booth and, and airbrush, um, you know, several cars at one time and then set them aside. And then gradually, you know, when I get some time in the evening, um, I'll actually start working with them with the uh, with the, with the pencils. Okay, now what? Tell me again what the uh, the equivalent dull coat that you're using. Um, the the equivalent dull coat. Uh, let me see if I can get the bottle out over here. It's basically called um, uh, Model Masters. Okay. It's uh, an acrylic, um, and it's um, it just basically you know washes up with uh, just water. And one of the little hobby shops that we have here in Pasadena is uh, the uh, the original Whistle Stop, yeah, which, which is a nice little uh, hobby shop, and and they have several selections of paint there, and so I'm able to get the uh, Monomaster acrylic. Um, okay, and so that's a water cleanup then. That's a water cleanup, so I don't have to again. I don't have to deal with the, uh, you know, the the solvent based type paints. I think I've, I've got to go to uh, my local hobby shop here. It's an affair with trains down in Deer Valley. I'm going to see if uh, Bob carries that because I would really like that aspect of water cleanup uh, mm-hmm. on the airbrush and everything else. Uh, okay, now just a side question. You know, Delco uses talc inside the, right. the fluid. Is that the same process with this product? I don't know if it does. Um, one of the one of the issues with um, that people have to be um, careful of if you use, you know, the regular dull coat that has talc. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes that will react with the ammonia in the window cleaner, and you'll get a fogging type of situation. So that's why I went with the the model masters. It does not appear to be. Um, Affected by the the ammonia okay. in the window cleaner. Um, I, I know I have a friend of mine who actually he uses dull coat and then he uses window cleaner on top of it to get more of a 
a fading, hazy-type look. Okay. Uh, he likes it. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> okay, because I know, uh, you know, alcohol over dull coat gives you a nice gray fade. Right, yeah, and I, and I, and I think that's the same thing that would have happened with, with the window cleaner. Okay, yeah, I'm sure there's some kind of alcohol in there. All right. So, what's uh? Do you have a website that shows some of your work, additional to you know what we saw in the uh, article? Uh, no, I, I don't. I haven't built a website. Um, okay. Um, How about the uh, the uh, Slim Gauge uh, Guild? Do they have a website? They, we do, but. Um, it's more uh, focused towards uh, just doing announcements of you know when our club is open. Um, oh, okay. We we should um, we used to have an older site that had a lot of pictures. And, okay. Uh, that you know people transition away from that. Okay. But, um, now uh, talking I, about if we can the club because uh, it's in the basement at a mall. Yeah, um, we've been around for 25 years now. Okay. Um, the, the the original Sun Gauge Guild was further down in Pasadena on Colorado Boulevard, and um, I guess that was about 30 years ago when the I guess the lease I was not around at that time, but the the lease on that building went up, so they had to find another area, uh, another room in the in the area, and it just so happened that. Um, they stumbled on this um, this is small mall in, in in Pasadena that used to be what's called a china factory. Oh, okay. um, Pasadena in, in the 30s and 40s used to be known for a lot of porcelain. They used to make a lot of porcelain figures. And um, so they had all this machinery down in the in the mall. And I guess in the in, in this building, and in I guess in the mid '70s or early '80s, they went out of business, and the building was basically turned into a commercial type setting. And it's fairly rare out here to have basements, but this one did have a basement. And I guess about 25 years ago, when the guys um, discovered this area to rent, um, it was just filled with uh, old uh, porcelain machinery. So it actually took them about two years to clean out this basement in order to get it fitted out for to put the layout in. Holy cow! But it but it turned out that it's about a 2,000 square foot room underneath um, underneath this building. And uh, originally there were two groups of people. There were HON3 fans and there were then SN3 fans. So they divided the room in half, um, basically with an aisle. And so we have two physical layouts. We have um, a layout, which is basically a SN3 layout, but we do have dual-gauge track on that one. So we can run standard-gauge S-scale um, engines. And then on the HON3 side, um, they have also dual-gauge. So they can run standard-gauge HO engines, which we do quite a bit. And then it splits off to run just narrow-gauge engines. And uh, we're mostly very mountainous-type scenery, um, kind of like a single track running through the mountains type uh, 
type of scenery. A little bit different from your standard gauge HO layouts that have, you know, miles and miles of, um, you know, multiple tracks. Uh, right. More of a, you know, a single rail running through the mountains type scenery. But how big is your club? How many members? Uh, we go up and down. Right, right now, I think we only have about 15 people. Um, it's kind of hard to find people who are are interested in, in narrow gauge. So um, we're going to see if we can do a little bit of a campaign to get more people interested. In, and hopefully, you know, doing things like, uh, you know, this article and, and um, you know, the, the magazine, the e-zine magazine, which is a great um, communicator, uh, people might in the area might find out about our club that normally may not know about it. I was, uh, and this goes back into the early 70s when I had just been transferred into the St. Louis area, and one of our engineers up front belonged to a, at the time, a quite large S-gauge club. Uh-huh. And he took myself and another guy as guest on one of their op sessions. And because uh, by then, you know, I was just buying some HO, Aether and Blue Box stuff and went into this quite large building where this, you know, there must have been 50, 60 people around right. carrying in these elongated suitcases with these brass uh, S-scale steam locomotives in them. And, They're I mean, huge. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they'd get them out on the track and they'd fire them up. And my buddy and I are just looking at each other going, I could probably buy a used car for the value of that locomotive. Because I just knew from reading some of the magazines that this stuff was incredibly expensive. But boy, did it look good going down the track. The ability to detail. Oh, wow. Even for, you know, non-nimble fingers like mine, I went, I could make this work. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's an impressive scale. Yep. We, um, we do a lot of detailing. Um, the... SN3 engines are about two-thirds the size of a standard S-scale engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those engines that that you have, you know, visually in your mind. So they're not as big and not as uh, they don't take up as much room. And uh, you can basically put together a 6-by-12-foot layout and actually have a nice SN3 um, layout. So it's not that much bigger than HO. Huh, okay. And it, it, it requires basically about a 30-inch radius to go around to to, the, uh, to look well. You can get smaller, but it, it looks kind of awkward. Now, is that, uh, that 30 inch, is that relative to the narrow gauge? Yes. With the shorter yeah. equipment? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, about five miles from me, there is a uh, a gentleman who owns, I've never met him, but who owns a, oh, what's USA Railway or U.S. Trains? Maybe that's it, USA Trains. I guess it's G-Gauge or G-Scale. Oh, yeah. yeah Outdoor layout throughout right. the, uh, the desert there because it's just, mm-hmm. we're in the desert foothills here. And he has a couple big boys. You can go on YouTube and 
search his stuff and watch this, uh, this guy's layout. And I'm going, holy moly, you know, can I come back and look at the space required for the for the HO? And this guy's got it setting on acres. Right. Runs it out through the desert. Ah, right. uh, my dream, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed this conversation, uh, yeah. Bill. Fascinating. Appreciate the information on, you know, the S-Gage, the, the little bit of trivia. And coincidentally enough, as I'm uh, thumbing through Cox Cable last night on the uh, video on demand, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was on. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I had no idea. that was. will claim the same. <laughs> yeah, it's like Tucson, Arizona in the 50s. Had right. a lot of movie or western shot down there in Monument Valley. Valley, so uh, I encourage the listeners make sure you read this article. Uh, it is just simplicity in itself that the Bill's talking about. Easy to control, easy to correct your uh, your oopses on there, and there's uh-huh. even the companion video. So, Bill, I appreciate your time here on this Saturday morning. Well, I enjoy talking to you. I hope it's been helpful to to a lot of people. Oh, it has been to me. Uh, when I'm out after a while, we've got a Michael's not too far away. I've got right. to try some of this. Just remember that the, the, the type of pencil you, you want to get is a Derwent watercolor pencil. You have okay. to make sure it's watercolor. It will say watercolor right on the pencil. And those are the ones that soften up nicely. And uh, they work just as well on, you know, HO or even I even got a, uh, an email from someone saying, well, it work on N-Gage. And I'm saying, of course. And it will also give you a lot better control than, than the powders. Oh, absolutely. And that, that's the advantage to me when you're doing rush streaks and stuff. Sure. Oh, okay. Well, it's been good. Okay. Okay. That wraps up another podcast from your friends at Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine. Uh, Thanks to our sponsor, which is Acolytes Incorporated. Go check out their website at www.acolytes.com. Again, that's www.acculites.com. Your DCC Center. See you next time.